This is Space Time, Series 24, Episode 105, for broadcast on the 17th of September, 2021. Coming up on Space Time, astronauts smell smoke and burning on the International Space Station, NASA to extend the life of the Mars Ingenuity helicopter indefinitely, and Beijing launches another Earth observation satellite. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. There have been more problems aboard the Russian section of the International Space Station with the smell of burning plastic triggering a smoke alarm in the Russian Zvezda service module. The Russian Federal Space Agency Roscosmos says the alarm was triggered during an automatic battery charging sequence ahead of a planned spacewalk by cosmonauts. It's the latest in a growing string of issues to have plagued the space station's Russian modules. In fact, just last week we reported cracks being discovered in the Russian Zarya module. Chief Engineer Vladimir Solovyev from the Russian rocket company Energia, which builds and manages much of Moscow's manned spacecraft and equipment, warned that superficial fissures were found at several places on the Zarya functional cargo block module. He says it's a bad sign and suggests that the fissures will begin to spread over time. The former cosmonaut says around 80% of the in-flight systems on the Russian segment of the space station have now reached their use-by dates. There have already been several leaks venting atmosphere into space from the Russian Zvezda module in recent years. The first was detected in 2019, but wasn't traced and patched until 2020. And then another leak was detected and patched in Zvezda in March this year. And that's been followed by a third still-to-be-traced leak, which sprang up in Zvezda last month. At the same time, Moscow's had ongoing problems with its new Naoka science module. It took a record quarter of a century to build the module because of continuing technical and quality control issues during its manufacture. And when it was finally launched into orbit, mission managers had to deal with a series of software issues, culminating just hours after docking to the space station, when Naoka suddenly fired up its thrusters without any command being issued, spinning the entire space station out of alignment. And these aren't the first incidents. Back in 2018, the space station also began leaking atmosphere into space when a badly patched drill hole suddenly opened up in the orbital module of the Soyuz MS-09 spacecraft, which was docked to the space station at the time. It seems the hole had been wrongly drilled into the spacecraft's hull during construction. Adding to that problem was the Roscosmos's refusal to release details of their investigation into the cause of the hole, sparking concerns of an endemic culture of quality control failure and cover-up. At about the same time, the Soyuz MS-10 mission was launching from the Baikonur Cosmodrome, carrying two crew members to the International Space Station. But 118 seconds into the flight, as the four strap-on first-stage boosters were being jettisoned in a spectacular manoeuvre known as the Korolev Cross, one of those boosters slammed into the core stage, triggering a catastrophic explosion which destroyed the rocket. Luckily, the crew aboard the Soyuz capsule managed to escape in time, making it back to the surface safely. It was later determined that one of the Soyuz FG first-stage strap-on boosters had been incorrectly mated to the core's second stage during assembly, damaging critical components. 
But rather than being repaired or replaced, the now damaged booster was simply reattached, only to fail during stage separation, destroying the launch vehicle and almost killing the crew. Russia says it's planning to leave the International Space Station around 2025, and it's already started building the first components of its own space station. And it's also signed a deal with China to jointly build a new lunar space station. Let's hope it doesn't take as long as Nayuka. This is Space Time. Still to come, NASA is set to extend the life of the Mars Ingenuity helicopter indefinitely, and we look at the history of constellations. All that and much more still to come on Space Time. NASA mission managers are so pleased with the performance of their tiny Mars Ingenuity helicopter, they're planning an indefinite mission extension. The 1.8-kilogram tissue box-sized rotocopter was originally only designed to test the ability of a small drone-type aircraft to operate under the alien conditions of another world. Instead, Ingenuity has proven to be an invaluable part of the Mars Perseverance rover mission, scouting ahead of the car-sized six-wheeled mobile laboratory, helping it avoid potential obstacles, and finding geological items of interest which would otherwise be missed from the ground or be too small to be seen from orbit. Ingenuity arrived on Mars, attached to the underbelly of the Perseverance rover, as it landed in Jezero Crater back in mid-February. Perseverance is on a mission to search for signs of past microbial life on the Red Planet, sifting through the silts and sediments on the floor of an ancient river delta which flowed into Jezero Crater billions of years ago. Ingenuity's just completed its 12th flight, scouting images of South Setia, a region of sand dunes, boulders and rocky outcrops which Perseverance is exploring. Flight 13 will cover the same area, but instead of probing further into Setia and imaging multiple ridgelines and outcrops as was done on Flight 12, Mission 13 will focus on one particular ridgeline and its outcrops, while flying at a lower 8 metre altitude instead of the previous 10 metres. Flight 12 covered some 450 metres of Martian terrain in just over 169 seconds, taking 10 images looking towards the northeast. Flight 13 won't be anywhere near as long, covering just 210 metres, but at a slower speed, taking around 161 seconds. It'll also be taking 10 images, but this time looking towards the southwest. This is space time. Still to come, we look at the history of constellations. And Beijing launches yet another Earth observation satellite. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Constellation is an area on the celestial sphere in which a group of visible stars forms a perceived outline or pattern. Now, typically it represents an animal, a mythological person or creature, or some inanimate object. Today, constellations are used to identify a specific region of the sky, but they originally started out as a way for prehistoric people to relate stories about their beliefs, their experiences, creation theory, and mythology. 
Well, every culture has developed its own constellations or smaller star groupings and the stories to go with them. Some, like the Pleiades or Seven Sisters, tell the same story across different cultures on different continents. And that suggests an origin going back to humanity's African origins some 60 to 70,000 years ago. The traditional 48 Western constellations are Greek. They're given in Aratus's work Phenomena and Ptolemy's Olmagist. But their origins predate these works by several centuries. Inscriptions on stones and clay writing tablets from Mesopotamia, dating back some 5,000 years, provides the earliest generally accepted evidence for humankind's identification of constellations. And these would later appear in many of the classical Greek constellations we still use today. At the same time, the ancient Egyptians were also developing their own mythology using the stars and combined their traditional stories with those of other nation-states, including the Greeks and Babylonians. The most famous constellations known today are the 12 which comprise the zodiac. These are found on the ecliptic, the plane around the sun on which the earth, moon and planets orbit. The origins of the zodiac remain historically uncertain. Its astrological divisions first became prominent around 400 BCE in Babylonian and Chaldean astronomy. Constellations from the far southern sky were added in the 15th century when European explorers began travelling through the southern hemisphere. In 1922, the International Astronomical Union formally accepted the modern list of 88 constellations, and in 1928 it officially adopted the constellation boundaries that together cover the entire celestial sphere. Other star patterns or groups called asterisms are not constellations under the formal definition, but are also used by observers to navigate the night sky. Asterisms may involve several stars within a constellation, or they may share stars with more than one constellation. The best known examples of asterisms include the Pleiades and Hyades within the constellation Taurus, and the False Cross, which is split between the southern constellations Carina and Vela. The latest issue of Australian Sky Telescope magazine takes an in-depth look at constellations and their origins. Joining us now with the details is the magazine's editor, Jonathan Nally. We take a look at constellations, but not your normal constellations. Traditionally, for most people, a constellation is, is where the ancients made patterns in the sky using stars, sort of a join-the-dots affair, and they put their legends and things and you know, the zodiac and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, into the, the stars and these patterns. Honestly, you go out and you have a look at them and virtually you and I would not be able to find I think they were stoned when they, when they did these constellations. I, I think they were, I think they were desperate them, and they just, yeah, they just, yeah, they just added up nothing, anything. Nothing like what they're supposed to be. But some there of are them a few do. That, the Scorpio, for example. It does Scorpius, look like a Scorpius. Scorpius yeah. yeah, Scorpius really looks like a Scorpion. Southern Cross looks like a cross. Yes. Um, um, there's a Triangulum, which looks like a triangle. That's a really imaginative one, isn't it? <laughs> but, but anyway, um, so, so yeah, the past constellations traditionally are join the dots affairs yeah. with stars. But, but some traditional societies also saw patterns in the dark patches between the stars. Like the Aboriginal okay. people of Australia, yes. Yeah, yeah. A lot of ancient cultures did this. And, you know, they had the benefit of having fantastic dark skies, not like most uh, human beings these days, we have light polluted cities and things where we can't see anything. So, yeah, they made uh, constellations and, and, and figures and, and they saw animals. They, they imagined they saw animals, the shape of animals and things in, in these dark patches, particularly through the Milky Way. So we've got a really good, interesting article about uh, several different cultures, including 
Indigenous Australians um, and, the, and the, the, the constellations they invented and the legends they associated with them. So it really makes for interesting reading. Constellations have changed over the years too. There used to be uh, more of them than there are now. They've, uh, they've broken some up and they've added others together. It's no longer the same. There are, what, 88 constellations now? That's right. There are 88 constellations recognised by the what's called the International Astronomical Union and they've got nothing really to do, aside from being in the same spot, there's sort of no relationship to what constellations originally were. Constellations originally were, um, oh, as I said, join the dots affairs associated with mythologies and legends and, and religious ideas and those sorts of things. Way to tell stories. Um, about yeah, putting things. stories yeah. into the sky. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I mean, back in the day when we didn't have artificial lighting and people sat around and looked at the sky at night and before they went to sleep, they told stories about what they could see up in the sky. So um, interesting stuff. So, yeah, they used to be join the dots affairs. Now, constellations these days are, um, are considered to be uh, areas of the sky. They, mm. they basically are the same spots as the constellations are, but they're just basically, you know, you imagine, imagine a map of America, right? It's all divided up into different states, uh, just, you know, Straight line here, straight line there, curly, squiggly line there, around there, and just joined up, and there you've got a state. Well, that's what they've done with the sky, and uh, the sky is just divided up into these geometric shapes around where the constellations used to be, and, and that's what constellations are these days. So, as you say, um, there are constellations that used to be around, and they've, they've disappeared, um, or they're not used anymore, those names in those regions. Uh, they've added some, and some stars that, um, you know, were were called were, were said to be part of this constellation are actually now in another constellation because they moved the boundaries. It's a bit like a, a bit like electoral boundaries or you know political boundaries. They yeah. they change them and that hasn't changed for a very long time. You know, and I don't see it changing again um, for any reason. The, the, it's for, a great way to do it because the alternative is right ascension and declination. And although that works for astronomers, it doesn't work too well for the average person in the street. So it's much easier if you uh, if you say, oh, over in the direction of Sagittarius or in the direction of Orion or something like that, because people who are interested in stars, without being astronomers, people who are interested in that sort of thing will still know what Orion looks like or what the Big Dipper looks like, what have you. Well, some, some, some people will, yeah. I mean, well, they'll have heard the name at least anyway. They yeah, might have heard the name yeah. Sagittarius. Uh, most people would not be able to find it in the night sky if, if they tried, and, and that's, not a, that's not, a, you know, not, not um, uh, having a go at that people there because you know you only you only learn things in the night sky if you want to but yeah certainly it, it's just like any any other map you know you if you said oh i live in such and such a state that's fair enough but if you wanted to really pinpoint exactly where you live you'd use your latitude and longitude yeah um it's the same thing in the sky you've got the um, right ascension declination is uh, um uh, longitude and latitude equivalent in the sky so anyway, that's what constellations uh, uh, were about and are about and and yeah we've got this really interesting really interesting article about how ancient cultures and, and even you know, cultures that survive today saw patterns in the darkness in the sky. That's Jonathan Nally, the editor of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. And don't forget, if you're having trouble getting your copy of Australian Sky and Telescope magazine from your usual retailer because of the current lockdown and travel restrictions, you can always get a print or digital subscription and have the magazine delivered directly to your letterbox or inbox. Subscribing's easy. Just go to skyandtelescope.com.au. That's skyandtelescope.com.au, and you'll never be left in the dark again. This is Space Time. Still to come, Beijing successfully launches yet another Earth observation satellite, and later in the science report, a new study warns that the Delta variant of COVID-19 doubles hospitalization rates compared to the Alpha variant. All that and more still to come on Space Time. 
Beijing has successfully launched yet another new Earth observation satellite. Since 2016, Beijing has launched more than 137 Earth observation satellites, providing near-continuous high-resolution monitoring of areas of interest to China, including at least 30 Gaofeng and some 84 Yao Gang spy satellites. The Gaofeng 502 was launched aboard a Long March 4 rocket from the Taiyuan Satellite Launch Center in northern China's Jiangxi province. The spacecraft is the second of the new Gaofeng 5 series and is equipped with seven payloads, including a hyperspectral high-resolution camera, a spectral imager, a greenhouse gas detector, a very high-spectral-resolution atmospheric environment infrared detector, an atmospheric trace gas differential absorption spectrometer, and a multi-angle polarization detector. The probe's been placed into a 702-kilometer-high orbit. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. A new study has confirmed that people infected with the Delta variant of the COVID-19 coronavirus have almost double the risk of hospitalization compared to those infected with the Alpha variant. The findings, reported in the Lancet Medical Journal, looked at more than 40,000 cases across the UK finding a two-fold increase in the risk of hospitalization from the Delta versus Alpha variant. Researchers also found that the risk of emergency care visits or hospital admissions was also around one and a half times higher. The findings primarily reflect the increased risk of hospitalization among unvaccinated or only partially vaccinated people, since these individuals make up the majority of cases in the study. The authors suggest that ongoing outbreaks of the Delta variant are likely to lead to a greater burden on healthcare services than what the Alpha variant imposed, especially for unvaccinated people and other vulnerable populations. Meanwhile, a new study has shown that half of all COVID-19 survivors still have some symptoms of the illness a year after infection, with one in three still displaying breathing problems. The findings, reported in the Lancet Medical Journal, are based on 1,276 patients who were hospitalised with COVID-19 in the first half of 2020, and looking at their health outcomes 6 months and 12 months after they left hospital. The authors found that at 6 months, 68% of participants still had at least one persisting symptom, and researchers say 49% still felt the effects after a year, with fatigue and muscle weakness being the most common lingering symptoms. The authors found that after a year, one in three participants were still experiencing shortness of breath, and they found that the whole cohort was overall less healthy than a similar group of people who had not been infected with COVID-19. The World Health Organization says more than 8 million people have now been killed by the COVID-19 coronavirus with more than 4.6 million confirmed fatalities and some 230 million people infected since the deadly disease was first spread out of Wuhan, China. A new study has found that transgender people are twice as likely to die early compared to cisgender men and women. The findings, reported in the Lancet Medical Journal, are based on national data in the Netherlands spanning 50 years. Researchers found the increased risk of dying among transgender people didn't decrease between 1972 and 2018 despite growing social acceptance and improvements in medical care. 
Compared to cis men and women, transgender women were more likely to die from heart disease, lung cancer, infection including AIDS, and from other non-natural causes, mainly suicide. For transgender men, the risk of dying was similar to that for cis men, but nearly double the risk compared to cis women. Most deaths were unrelated to any gender-affirming hormone treatments. The one positive finding is that over 50 years, deaths related to HIV have dropped in the transgender community. Researchers with Flinders University have developed a wastewater recycling program using a cost-effective system to harvest microalgal biomass for use in biofuels and other applications. Their high-rate algal pond model is now recycling wastewater at two regional South Australian locations, one at Peterborough in the state's north, the other at Kingston on Murray in the state's east. Both are using algae and bacteria to treat wastewater. You can read about their findings in detail in the journal Algal Research. The push to get at least 80% of Australians fully vaccinated against COVID-19 is now moved into top gear. And with it comes the promise of a return to the good old days of freedom, at least for the vaccinated. But there will be a vaccine certificate, which will be issued to your cell phone or passport to prove that you've had both your jabs. However, if you're not vaccinated, restrictions will still apply. So, are we becoming a society of haves and have-nots? The clean and the unclean a possible precursor to China's infamous social credit point system. Tim Mindham from Australian Skeptics says it really all comes down to a balance between public safety and personal liberty. Obviously, there, there are two issues here. One is one is the scientific issue, if you like, and then the medical issues. And the other one is the human rights issues or the regulatory issues. There's three levels you can have. You can have, as far as vaccination, you have optional, like, you know, take it if you'd like or don't take it if you don't want. Which is what we have now. Which is what we have now, yes. There's conditional, which is basically putting the emphasis on a place where someone wants to go right? Have you been vaccinated? If not, you can't come in here. That's that sort, sort of, of thing. where we're and heading. Yeah. That's probably where we're heading. And there's the compulsory which is saying, you have to be vaccinated. I don't care if you stay at home. You have to be vaccinated. And that's, that's from the government end. So the optional is the person's choice. The conditional is the venue's choice, for want of a better term. And the compulsory is the government's choice. They're the three levels. So if you make a conditional, you're putting the emphasis on the thing that someone wants to do, making a decision. We have compulsory laws Everywhere. We have, you, know, you can't go through a red light. You have to wear your seatbelt. Optional is obviously extremely self-standard. Um, you know, I, don't, I don't care about anybody else. And conditional is when, which happens all the time as well. You can't walk into a, your local pub, nightclub at night, wearing your swimming costumes and thongs. You they obviously you have don't to go to the same nightclubs I do. <laughs> I'm not going to go to that. Basically, yeah, you have to wear a shirt, you have to wear trousers, you have to wear shoes, right? And that's conditional, right? You don't have to go to the nightclub, you can go somewhere else if you like. We're not saying you have to wear shirt, shoes, trousers everywhere. It's up to you. But to get in here, it's a condition of entry. And that's basically what largely they're talking about. If you want to work here, you have to be vaccinated. You don't have to work here. We're not saying you, know, you have to come and work here. You know, we're not saying you have to be vaccinated. But if you want to work here, it's a condition of your job. Well, that would be and the other next people... issue, wouldn't it? Employee safety. What sort of responsibility do employers have for the safety yeah, well, of employee employees? Employee safety also protecting the customer rather than the customer infecting the other customers. Mm. 
So, so it's an issue that, you know, you, you could say, okay, I can go into a hairdresser, but I have to be vaccinated. But you say, if the person is going to cut my hair, are they vaccinated? Right? It works both ways. Right? And that's perfectly fair. If someone's going to stop you coming into a venue because whether you've been vaccinated or not, you should ask the same thing of the staff there. Anyone who's going to touch my hair, pour me a drink, serve me dinner, whatever, takes my ticket, whatever, you can ask if they've been vaccinated too. And that's conditional. I won't come in here unless you've been vaccinated. It's not actually that difficult an issue. The one that is probably the most difficult is compulsory. You have to be vaccinated. Now, some people can't be. Yeah, the obviously government because don't have a right to put something in your body without your permission. I mean, yeah, that's where, that's where it gets messy. And that's where it gets messy from a scientific point of view, it'd be great, right? That everyone gets vaccinated, right? Everyone who can get vaccinated from a physical point of view should be vaccinated. That, that would be the, the ultimate end sort of protecting the community. From an ethical point of view, from a social justice point of view, from a privacy point of view, that's where it becomes messy. So perhaps conditional is, is, is a better way. It still gives the freedom of choice. It's just not you can choose everything to do. Papieren, bitte. <laughs> papers, please. I want your papers, yeah? It's, it, it's a tricky one, but I don't think conditional is necessarily very hard. But as I say, we do compulsory in our societies every day. Maybe compulsory, but with a sunset clause. Yeah, well, that, that could be as long as there's a problem. But then if this is going to be like flu and it's always around, and because you you, you, you won't get the anti-vaxxers accepting the idea of a sunset clause. Ah, oh, that's just the thin edge of the web. Well, the other angle, of course, is if we do bring in vaccination passports, and that's sort of the way it's looking right now, are we going to be placed in a situation where there won't be a sunset clause, where these things will be here forever? The government will know everything you do because the infrastructure will then be in place for that. Yeah, and yeah. once governments have that sort of power, history shows they don't give it up. Mm-hmm. I, know, I know what you mean. And, and that's, that's a different issue from the sceptics. You know, that's, that's an inter- that, is, that is an e- issue. But you, know, you, you have to weigh up personal freedom and freedom to be not tracked. Although you're carrying a mobile phone, you're being tracked. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's if it's all about people catching disease from a vaccinated person, it just gets silly. In the same way as people who who say, ah, it's not a hundred percent effective. Nope. And if you're vaccinated, why should you care what the dude down the street has done, whether he's vaccinated or not? Yeah, that's exactly right. But no vaccine is a hundred percent effective. Mm. No vaccine, and you can still catch it. If you look at the numbers of people who are in hospital, there's a small percentage of people who are vaccinated, single vaccinated, especially who are in hospital. Very, very few double vaccinated. The vast majority of people who are unvaccinated and that's the percentage you're going to get of the effectiveness of a vaccine. If you're having one person in a hundred who has got single dose of vaccine, that makes it sort of the yeah, 99% effect. If you've got five people out of a hundred, that's 95% effective, which is not bad for a vaccine. There are vaccines, I think, whooping costs down to about 70% effective. And because I've been playing devil's advocate here, I need to let everybody know that I have had both my shots of the AstraZeneca vaccination and I'm waiting for my first booster of uh, what will be Moderna or Pfizer, whatever the booster is when we when we get it. Yeah, depending on when this program goes to air, I'll, I'll be double vaccinated with AZ as well. It's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. 
or by becoming a space-time patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial-free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group, and other rewards. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.com for full details. And if you want more Space Time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at Stuart Gary on Twitter, at Spacetime with Stuart Gary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel, and on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. And Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You've been listening to Space Time with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.